In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Welcome listeners to this week's edition of Moving Forward. I'm Kristen Nepper, and today I'm really excited to introduce my guest, Jody Ettenberg. Jody is the creator of Legal Nomads and the author of The Food Traveler's Handbook. I'm excited to speak to her about this because Jody is also suffers from celiac disease. So Jody, thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be recording with you. Tell us a little bit about the birth of Legal Nomads and what was your life like before its creation? Sure. I, um, I'm a former corporate lawyer. So before I started Legal Nomads, I was working for about five years in New York City uh, in corporate law at two different firms. I started doing M&A and securities, and then I switched to do new media and technology work at a firm called Davis & Gilbert. Uh, and I quit in 2008, expecting to take a one-year sabbatical and to travel the world and come back and be a lawyer again. But I was surprised uh, when I started a personal blog for my family to follow along uh, since they weren't coming with me that the site (laughs) sort of grew and I remember the first time it got comments from people who weren't my family and I was like what are these people doing reading my stuff (laughs) and and how did they find it right Um, and it sort of grew from there and actually April 1st will be eight years of uh, since I quit and eight years of living this sort of nomadic life and living where I want to eat um, and I think, I you know, you, you know, it really didn't, it, people give me this, uh, sort of projected idea. Oh, you were a lawyer. You burnt out. You were, you were said, screw it and started traveling. And I was like, no, no, that's totally not what happened. It really was, um, this thing I started for my family, expecting it to last a year. And, and of course it turned into a new career by accident, which I'm grateful for. Uh, and that's where we are today. Okay. So did you, were you suffering from corporate burnout or not so much? I think, you know, I don't know how much you've read about the story, but I, I went to law school because someone bet me I couldn't get in. Um, oh, and I, no, I and didn't I, read that piece. Yeah, I went straight from CEGEP, uh, which is basically the Quebec equivalent of grade 12 and 13 in, in Quebec, in Montreal. I was from Montreal, grew up okay. there. Yep. Um, so, you know, I never wanted to be a lawyer. No one in my family was a lawyer. They think I'm insane. They thought I was insane for, for going straight out of high school. And... You know, I, McGill University was taking a few people who are younger and throwing them in with everyone else. So it wasn't a pre-law program. It was really like smushing everyone into one program. And, and I got in and I just figured, you know, there wasn't anything else I was aching to do. I thought it would be a great education uh, and I would see where it went. So it, it wasn't as though I had this like lifelong desire to be an attorney and then burnt out. What that meant was when I received an offer to start working in New York City uh, from McGill, you know, there were on-campus recruitments going on there and still are. Mm -hmm. I figured, you know, I always wanted to travel. I had seen a documentary about Siberia when I was a kid, and I had really wanted to go and take the Trans-Siberian trains and, and sort of had this in my mind as I was working there that I would eventually just take a sabbatical and then start traveling uh, for a bit and come back to New York and maybe find work in the public sector, doing advocacy work as a lawyer, yes. um, something something different than private firm life. So it wasn't that I burnt out so much as, you know, this wasn't what I had wanted my life's work to be, but I did think it was a really useful training for whatever I did next. And I really valued the firm that I worked with. Both of them were great and the people were great. Um, and actually, my clients still read the blog now, which is really lovely. They reply to my new posts and they're like, how are you doing? Um, <laughs> but it but it wasn't it wasn't um, 
it wasn't the way that people portray it, which is, you know, I had sort of pointed myself in this direction. I'm going to be a lawyer and then, you know, freaked out and shifted directions. It's it was a much more holistic change uh, that kind of stemmed from starting to travel and learning that people seem to like my writing. I have always mm. written. Okay. You know, for me, I've said in interviews in the past, if no one was reading my writing, I would still be writing because it's something I need to do. It's cathartic. Yeah. Uh, I've al- I've always written. So this pleasant surprise that people were willing to pay for my writing and wanted to read my perspective was certainly not what I expected at all. Um, but it's really been wonderful to watch the site grow and to see the opportunities that have stemmed from it in the process. So I have a number of questions from that. So you grew up in Canada and in America, I think that the reason people are projecting on you, it's probably other Americans, I'm going to guess. And we, you know, are, we have a society that's very driven and typically, you know, you decide young what you're going to grow up and be. And being a lawyer in particular is a very competitive endeavor. And it's something you do after college. I know my girlfriend, Vanessa, is from Belgium and she is a lawyer, but it's something that you do in undergrad. And you can, of course, go to grad school, but it's something that you start at the age of 18 or 19. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about being Canadian, um, going to law school, which is a very competitive thing in our country, and then going to work in a New York firm? Because that's kind of the top of the top, if you will, if you go into it's, you know, Scadden or any of the, the larger firms. I was in a DC office at a big New York law firm and it was very, very competitive and there's a different energy and, and environment around that. Can you speak to that a little? Sure. So in Canada, it's the same as the States in terms of it being a postgraduate degree. Okay. Um, McGill just decided to try this and they've continued the program and take people out of the French system primarily. So I was one of the few that young who were not in the French system. So the French law schools in Montreal and in within Quebec do follow the European system, which is often a pre-university. Uh, it is the university and bachelor mm-hmm. degree. Yeah. Um, Canada, Canada does not. So um, it was definitely a minority, definitely extremely competitive at McGill. And I actually was thinking of leaving because... You know, I remember people hiding books in other parts of the oh, libraries. Yeah. So that, yeah, just so terrible one stuff. L, right? Yeah. And, um, I was like, what is going on? This is ridiculous. Um, but, you know, it was a really good education. McGill is very different, and, and Canadian schools are different. There's very little Socratic method at McGill. It was everyone is really pushed into trying to get a Supreme Court clerkship or a federal court uh, yeah. clerkship and to do nonprofit and, and advocacy work. There, there are obviously a lot of people do move into the private sector, both in Canada and outside of it. Um, but it's a very different feel to what my colleagues described in American law schools in the sense of there is a lockstep thing that you have to do after graduation. Um, and because we don't have the crippling debt that you guys do yes. have, it is a very different value proposition because, you know, my tuition as a Canadian resident was 1600 at a time where, you know, the Canadian dollar was was weak like it is now. Um, it did go up to parity recently, but it's back down. So my summering in New York City, for example, was able I was able to cover any of the of the payments I needed to. I think when I speak to Americans and, and when I do interviews, I'm always very clear to say, look, I came from the Canadian system. Yeah. So my decision to quit and not go back was one that I was able to make partly because I didn't have debt anymore. I was able to just go and start building something from scratch. Uh, without that hanging over my head. And and I, it's really unfortunate that the American system is so devastating in that sense. You know, it, it doesn't allow you to truly maximize the way that you want to build your life. 
and see how flexible you can be with it because unfortunately you are really stuck um, paying off that for many years to come. Uh, and often yeah. that means stay, staying in the private system, in the private law system as a lawyer, for example. You know, this, I have a series on my site called Thrillable Hours, which was a play mm, on I Thrillable Hours. I saw that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Lawyers find that funny. Non lawyers are like, that's not. What does joke. that mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's hilarious. Like, exactly. No, it's <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. You know, the series has been used in law schools, not just in the, in Canada, but in the States also to highlight case studies of people who've left. And, you know, there are so many people who do leave the profession of law. And yeah, I think I think it is a really difficult place to start working. The system is set up um, that it's it's extremely top heavy in terms of, you know, everyone is your boss. It, it's unlike other professions where you have usually one manager who works with you. Almost any partner can in your department oh, can be yes. the, the person that assigns to you. <laughs> you know, it's PTSD it, flashbacks. I know. <laughs> it, you know, sociologically, it's a pretty fascinating environment and yeah. not necessarily a healthy one. I started at Paul Weiss in New York. That was my first firm that I worked with um, okay. at four. And so like you, a really big uh, New York firm. You know, I think they trained you really well there. I, I didn't have issues. It wasn't like a sociopathic environment. I actually really enjoyed the people I worked with. That said, they underhired in my year because um, the economy oh, picked up. And yeah. it was, I, I billed 3,000 hours in my first 11 months. <gasps> and oh it was my. brutal. Yeah. Wow. Brutal. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's just not the life I wanted. And I remember my dad said to me, because, you know, he was like, are you sure you want to quit? This is really kind of aggressive. And I was like, look, every day that I spend working as a lawyer in New York is is a day closer to dying as a person I don't want to be. And he was mm, yeah. really shocked, shocked by that statement. And I, that's not meant to, you know, insult the profession. But it personally, you know, I was someone who loved to write. I was always someone who focused on, you know, learning as much as possible every single day in like a variety of things. And I wanted to build a life for myself where it enabled me to keep learning more. And instead of, you know, just ratcheting down on the expertise in a specific area of the law, I felt like if I could broaden my my day to day worldview, I would be a happier person. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know what that looked like, but I did think it meant working in a more advocacy sense as a lawyer. I did a lot of pro bono work when I was in New York and I found it very fulfilling. Um, I didn't think it would look like it looks now, which is, you know, I eat soup for a living and I write about it. <laughs> uh, that was, this was a pleasant surprise, but the goal was always, you know, how can I build a life for myself where I, my days are filled with not, I never thought of it as like doing what I loved that happened by accident. It was more, what qualities do I want on a day-to-day -day basis that, that are my input that would bring me joy. And to me, it was, I'm, I've always tried to be as curious as possible and look at the small details in the world and try and make sense of them. So it was how can I build work for myself that focuses on details and like reframing them in ways that tries to make the world better. That's a I, let's pause for that, everybody. I have a lot I want to unpack with you, but I think that's really important. And one of the first questions that comes to mind, and I love the way you say, I didn't know what that would look like because I think a lot of us are so married to certainty and we're so risk adverse. So we are told, you know, go to school, get a good job, do this for 40 years, get your gold watch, go on your way. And that's not actually how the world works. It's very different than what it was when our parents were younger. So how did you manage your relationship with uncertainty? And I want to ask this specifically in the context as a female who travels all over the world. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's not something that goes away, the, the fear of uncertainty and the instability. You know, it, it's something I struggle with, especially coming straight out of law school so young, going mm-hmm. into a lockstep profession. You know, everything was super certain in that sense. And you're completely right. You know, the idea of going, getting a job, getting a pension, working till whenever retiring and on that pension is is not the way the world works right now. You know, there's yeah. a my, my friend Taylor wrote a great book called The End of Jobs. And he talks about how entrepreneurship is actually not a risky proposition the way it used to be. In fact, it's probably the least risky proposition because you're controlling an aspect of your life that you couldn't otherwise control you know, sure. years ago. And I think for me, that's been the primary motivator for doing this. Number one is the flexibility um, because, you know, for example, I'm very close to my family. You know, a family member was ill earlier in the year. I came home, spent a month. You know, there, there's some the ability to build your own schedule for me is a really important one. And I think, you know, when you talk about building professions and and following, you know, things that really bring you joy, there's this almost rigid mindset within that subset that is unfortunate because being flexible means if you want to spend time with your family or spend time, you know, at home, wherever home may be, there's nothing wrong with that. It shouldn't be you're constantly forced to then live this extraordinary life to the detriment of those other relationships. Yeah. You know, everything, everything in moderation. Right. So for me, the counterpoint to the uncertainty is the benefit of flexibility. And I think that that gives me a lot of comfort. Um, I think at the beginning, you know, it's really stressful. I I didn't sleep for a long time before I quit originally. And I was only planning on going for a year. Um, it's really hard to take yourself out of whatever confirmation bias you're in, whatever mindset your profession is in, especially as lawyers, because, you know, you're really met, you're led to believe that this is the only way you're going to be successful in in life. I remember being at my law firm and thinking like, wow, if I can't succeed here, I am a failure as a human because you have blinders on really blinders. yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, for people setting out and thinking about doing something different, there's a few things that are really important. Number one is to define, you know, what you think success is, because for me, it was never just about money. Right. And I know that it's not about money for a lot of people, but you know, your relationship to money is, is codependent with your relationship on with fear and giving up the comfort of money is something that you can only do if you face this idea that like you're making yourself very vulnerable by deciding to change that. And then you have to like calibrate how these other obligations in your life are. You know, I would never tell someone you should quit your job and do X, Y, and Z because I don't know, do they have a mortgage? Do they have a family to support? You know, there are other complicating factors that play into where you stand with fear and where that relates to money, right? So figure out what, what does success mean to you and for me, it was, like I said, that curio- building a, a career for myself that involved learning as much as possible was, to me, a successful component to my life. And then being able to reframe that for people to help them live more interesting lives was the second part. Those two things, to me, made me feel like I would be, I would feel successful if I did those things. Yeah. That's, not every, that's not everyone, right? That's a deeply, deeply personal decision. So figure out your relationship to success. Figure out what your worst case scenario is. Um, because for me, that was I've maintained my New York bar admission. I still do. Sure. Yeah. My my I worst case same. is yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll go back if I have to go back, even if it's doc review, whatever it is. Right. Like, right. If if I go back, I have this worst case scenario that's sitting there for me, and it's not a worst case, right? There are way worse cases in life than going back to being a lawyer, even though some people may not feel that way. Realistically, there are way worse things you can do with your life, and I think 
having that as a comfort was comforting for my family. And it's definitely been comforting for me in the face of that truly, uh, you know, endemic uncertainty that involves giving up everything you think is normal to your life. I think that's such an important point that fear can become an entity of its own. And I know for me, I have been, you know, in difficult situations with a a corporate job I had before and certainly, you know, branching out into entrepreneurship. And I had a coach one time, I was freaking out about something that now is very trivial, but it was marketing or what a, a marketing campaign and it wasn't going very well. And she had me do this exercise that was spiraling down is what we called it. Like, okay, well, if you don't do well with this campaign, what will happen? And it basically right. ended up me being homeless and alone under a bridge and dying. And she's like, well, is <laughs> that really going to happen? happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so looking at how it can take on a life of its own and that it's not really realistic I think is a really helpful tool in really getting you grounded and then moving you forward into action. Yeah, and I think the human brain is a really complicated, mighty thing, right? You know, you can convince yourself of a lot. You can get deeply lost in that spiral of fear. Uh, And I think it's really important to write things down and try and be, you know, both realistic, but also not to get lost in this very trendy, um, you know, I'm just going to do what I love and find my passion in life because that's also not necessarily truly realistic. That's why I consistently try and correct people when they say, you know, you, you quit to do what you love. And I was like, no, I quit to take a sabbatical and it turned into a job I love unexpectedly. But, Mm, you know, I didn't, I would not be so arrogant as to just walk away from everything without having thought it through. Not that, you know, there's, again, everyone's got a very different path and depending on the debt and the, and the money issues and whatever you've got going on, you can take a certain percentage of risk more than others necessarily. I could afford to take a bigger risk because I didn't have the debt and I didn't have kids. I didn't, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't fixed, but you know, I did also say if I haven't made, you know, X amount of money by my, by it was 2010 that I really started thinking about it as a business If I haven't made X amount of money by the end of 2010, I was like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go home because I wanted to not just drift indefinitely. If it wasn't turning into something that I could really leverage into the life I want, then I was going to just try something else. And I think, you know, Cal Newport writes a lot about the risk of trying to focus on or obsess over finding your passion. It reminds me of you know, Avenue Q is like, what's my purpose? Um, <laughs> I just saw that a few weeks ago. It's so funny, <laughs> such a funny, but, but very resonant, especially for millennials today who are, who are under this, you know, s- semi self-imposed, but media imposed mm-hmm. also obsessive passion finding, you know, extravaganza. And I think Cal's, Cal's perspective, which I think is really valuable, is basically like, you don't need to absolutely have passion for what you do. And if that was the case, then everyone in Canada would be trying to be a hockey player. You know, this is not... It's <laughs> Me not, too, actually. I'm from Chicago. I'm a big Blackhawks fan. So. There you go. <laughs> well, I understand that. Yeah, exactly. Being from Montreal. He was like, if that's the case, then everyone would be doing that. That's not necessarily the answer. His perspective is, you know, what you should do is try and leverage a skill set that you've built that you've become really good at that allows you to leverage it. So get so good at what you do and pick something that's interesting enough and his enough. He's like, just, it enough. doesn't have to be the thing. It has to be good enough. But if you get really good at it, your satisfaction levels always increase. And then at that point, leverage that skill set to try and, you know, finagle the life you want. So whether that means telling your boss, look, I really want to work you know, remotely, sometimes mm-hmm. I want to try and create a virtual law firm. I want to, you know, there are so many other options that don't involve like burning down the house. 
Hey, Moving Forward listeners, if you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent point. It always is in incremental steps. And one of the most valuable things that I learned, speaking about your passion, you know, as a child, and I don't know about you, I was taught that, you know, your passion can be a firefighter or an actress or a doctor. It was a tangible profession. And what I learned from one of my mentors, Mastin Kip, is it's actually the feeling that you get what lights you up inside. And by being, Mm -hmm. yeah, so more your values, right? So adventure, freedom, compassion, empathy, whatever it happens to be. So recognizing that that can take you on a trajectory, you know, in many different directions, that really is what it's all about, right? Is to cultivate those feelings that light us up inside. And that can look like almost anything. Yeah, I agree with that. Actually, it's a really nice way of framing it. And I think it's, um, it's not talked about as much because it doesn't sound as good. You know, people <laughs> people want definitive statements. They want to be told what to do, Certainty. even though they're looking yep. to not be told what to do. Exactly. Um, you know, I think when you talk about things like the feeling of what you what you are up to in your life, had you said to me when I was leaving to travel, like, do you want, w- would your life look like it looks now? Is this your ideal life? I would have said no, right? I didn't mm-hmm. think that this is the kind of life that would make me happier, that this was what I wanted to do. Um, necessarily, but but I I sort of found my way, and I think the speaking I've done, uh, public speaking I've done about uncertainty and and you know career transitions and that kind of thing, I always say you know there's really no shame in not having the kind of plan that everyone else wants you to have that you've convinced yourself is shameful not to have, but it's just not how life works. Like the fluidity is one of the most important things, and if you're so rigid in what you expect of yourself, not only are you putting this tremendous pressure as as your transition happens, but you're also essentially blocking out like the kind of wonderful serendipitous things that you could find yourself doing. Had I quit my job and been like, I'm going to definitely do this and then definitely take the time and do X, Y, and Z, I would end up in a very different place that I'm at now. It's only because these opportunities started coming my way and I tried to quell the uncertainty and that fear and be like, you know what, I'm going to try and see where this goes. And where it led me is somewhere I never expected, but I'm so grateful for it, I think in part because it was unexpected, right? Sure. And And I find myself in a place now where I can look back and be like, you know, the biggest thing I didn't do was force myself to this narrative that I actually thought other people wanted for me more than what I wanted for myself. Oh, that was really big. I think that's so true because we are such, we're so told that, you know, outside markers of, of success define us. And that's not really the case. It's what we feel inside and what lights us up. And I like what you said, too, in the sense that, you know, if you specifically say, I am going to do A, B, and C, and then A, B, and C does not come to fruition, a lot of times we'll feel shame or humiliation or embarrassment around that, and we'll lock ourselves away. Fear will force us to do that. And we won't have conversations about that are authentic that say, you know what, I failed at this, or this isn't working. Can you help me? What, is, what are you passionate about? Or this is what I like to do. You know, How would I make a living doing this with other people? And I have certainly found that. It's when I have allowed myself to be the most vulnerable and say, I'm interested in X and I'm not sure how that could work for me, that it really has opened up doors, but it's getting out of our own way. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and, you know, our, our minds are our worst enemies in many ways, right? We, we put all this often 
the things we think people think about us are not remotely what they're thinking about us. It's a very difficult um, thing that we all do to each other. This this definition of success, you know, it's partly cultural, like you talked about American culture. I think other countries have different definitions of what success means. Yeah. Um, some are some are similar and some are not, right? But ultimately, um, I think finding yourself on a on a trajectory and being able to explore without you know, falling into the pitfalls of like the, the emotions we put on ourselves, you know, I'm sure you've read Brene Brown's work and, you know, I've listened to some podcasts. I love that she admits wholeheartedly that the only reason that she got into what she did in her book was partly because of her own feelings, right? She said, I was representing all these qualities in someone that I was about to write about. And I looked in the mirror and said, oh my God, no, like this is not isn't what I want for me either. And she was willing to put herself on the line and go into that. You know, there is a problem. I think, you know, there's a lot of oversharing that goes on in social media and everything. I'm not talking about oversharing. I'm talking about, you know, framing your experiences in a way that can benefit others. And she does a really good job of not airing dirty laundry yet. Yeah. Also, also being deeply vulnerable in a way that really benefits people who need that in order to feel like they can take the steps that she's taken. And so for transitions, for lawyers specifically, I think you know, the goal in the series I had was to try and just give people case studies. But, you know, for a profession like law or doctors or accountants, it's very rigid. And yeah. one of the most helpful things I think really is, like you said, you had a mentor talking to people, being able to say, you know, here's what I'm scared of and have people be a soundboard because it's really tough in your own head if you don't do that. No, I totally agree. And one of my favorite things that Brene Brown says about sharing is that you share with the select few that have held space for you that are worthy of hearing your story. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true and that's something we we're all very bad at, but I think a lot of the younger generation nowadays is not necessarily bad at but doesn't necessarily know that it could be different oh like yeah don't we all though yeah it's not you know you see so many negative articles about millennials and and you know certain value systems and whatnot but I think part of it is that you just don't actually have a, a frame of reference because yeah the way the way technology has changed has has really fundamentally sped up generational gaps I think in in ways that wasn't mm-hmm. there before so it's not like about chastising younger people for their oversharing. It's explaining like you'll benefit from thinking about this internally and really being that someone needs to earn your story. You don't just vomit it out to the internet, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And yeah, technology really, I like the way you said that. I read a statistic yesterday. I remember when I started um, working in the corporate training arena, the adult attention span was 20 minutes. And I read just yesterday that the adult attention span is now five seconds. So that was a mere 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. And it's changed that dramatically. And, you know, technology is responsible for that. And I'm not any different. Like my attention span is not 20 minutes. (laughs) If I start reading a story and it doesn't immediately resonate with me, then boom, I'm on to the next like a, you know, yeah, cartoon character. um, I do think. So there's a lot of talk about meditation. It's becoming, you know, more and more trendy. I did a Vipassana meditation at the beginning of January last year and uh, it's the 10 day silent meditation. I'm actually writing about it now and I'll put that post up shortly. Um, but it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done willingly, uh, as opposed to like things that, ha- things that happened to me. Forced upon you, um, yeah. It wasn't the silence at all. It's of course being stuck in your own head and sitting yep. for 16 hours a day 
Oh, uh, wow. And, and doing nothing but trying not to think. Like you're just, yeah. I had this, this idea that it was like about, oh, I can just think. No, and you're spending the entire time like deeply with discipline retraining the habit patterns of your mind. And I bring up meditation because I think that is something people talk about um, in terms of productivity and whatnot. But for me, at least, I found that it was a really interesting um, way for me to train my brain to be more focused. And my, my productivity did change. But what I also decided after it was over was, I will talk to anybody that I care about and ask them what book changed their life. And if it changed their life, I commit to reading the whole thing, no matter how I didn't or did enjoy it. And so I, I forced myself to get through all these books that I probably otherwise wouldn't have gotten through. I, I read some great books and I read some really terrible books. Um, <laughs> but even that was a good exercise, like, you know, just sticking with it. And I think yeah. with technology, we don't stick with things as much. Um, that book... But that's a perfect example. I remember 10 years ago when I was married, I used to read all my books and I would have, you know, one at a time on my nightstand. I have about 14 books on my nightstand right now. <laughs> None of them are complete. Yeah. 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 And it's not just you, right? I think the way that technology has changed the, our minds is, is, can be a great thing and in many ways is not allowing us to do great work. I, again, I bring up Cal Newport because his new book is called Deep Work. And it basically talks about that, like, in order to really get into the nitty gritty of what your brain is capable of, you need to sequester time where it's like you're able to go deep into the ideas and the, the things that you really want to build. And you have to, like, just wall yourself off to do that. Um, yeah. And I think I think not enough people do do that. I would not be able to have done the work I do if I wasn't, you know, in my case, isolated in Myanmar for seven weeks before they had SIM cards, for example, right. where there, there was nothing for me to do, but like deeply integrate with my environment and learn as much as I can. I Those think, kinds of. Yeah. It's such a gift, though, too, because I've met so many people and I'm sure this isn't indicative of, Amer of American culture, but it's really true. People who have said to me, I can't sit still. I can't sit still, you know, and when I was younger, I used to think that was a great thing because that meant you were in action all the time and you were hardworking and you were doing things and you were achieve, achieve, achieve. And now I realize that's a really dangerous proposition because you're not being introspective. You're not really cultivating the life you love if you're just down this rabbit hole constantly, you know, trying to be in action without any reflection. Yeah, that's it's an interesting way of talking about it I, th I think there's two problems there one is that in society these days you know there's there's an obsessive focus on how you appear on social media and yeah. it's not necessarily always reality but but by you're like giving power to other people's perceptions of you that that is just a waste of your time like I, of course mm. I care I care what people think you know I don't want people to be like this is this Jody this Jody person is terrible but I would be much more hurt if someone was like this Jody is a terrible writer than if they were right. like she do, she doesn't look very happy in that photo you know like who cares this is just a snapshot in time and that people are obsessive about how they appear um online and I think part of it is also discipline to be honest and I don't say this in like a I walked up the hill both ways you know right older older than millennials way but just discipline like I couldn't sit still either. I forced myself to sit still for 16 hours a day and it changed my brain yeah. to be able to be able to sit still more like we there's more agency on a personal level than people are wanting to accept, I think, because it's not mm -hmm. easy. Like the, there is this look for the easy route. It's really not easy to maximize what your brain's capable of, but you can do it. Anybody can do it. It just takes sitting down and committing to like the deep discipline to, to do that and not 
it's again, like the, the Vipassana was one of the hardest things I've done. Yeah. But what it taught, what it taught me was like, wow, my brain is actually capable of changing in a 10 day period. Like imagine if I kept up right. in some ways with this, what could it, what could it do? Yeah. I, yeah. I think that that's an amazing lesson that we're all so much more powerful than we realize. Yeah. I think that's, that's very true. Let me ask you final question. So what are you doing now that terrifies you, but you're doing it anyway? <laughs> uh, I think that you know, doing what I've been doing is, is probably still the most terrifying thing because it, it really mm. still is. You know, there are days I think about what am I going to do? How am I really going to save money for retirement or whatever that means? You know, in today's world, it, it's a ve- it's a much more uncertain existence. Um, but the business I've built, my goal was, you know, build a blog that people would want to to read you know, when I decided this would be a business, but do it without monetizing the base site, uh, in, in a non-sustainable way. So I, you know, have links to Amazon books that I've read and stuff like that, but I don't take sponsored posts and I don't take press trips. Um, it's more, you know, what stemmed from the platform of the site. And those are things that are big projects that hopefully will continue to stand no matter what I do with my life. So, I'm building a huge celiac database of gluten-free cards that are translated with names of dishes. And I've got a big crowdsource database of people helping me with the translations. And I've hired a celiac to help me research them. This is a real pain point for celiacs because yeah. we don't, yeah, the cards that exist, even if they're translated are just not detailed enough. And I got really sick in Japan and I sent a reader out with my card and she was totally fine. And it was just such a great I was like so relieved. Yeah. So I went for, I went forward with this project and eventually that'll be an app. Um, and I've got these hand-drawn maps of food that I'm doing that are typographic maps that just didn't exist um, before. And I wanted to do something really special and artful. And then there's the book. And I mention this because I think when you're, when you're facing that kind of fear of uncertainty, as I still am and many of us are, to try and think ahead to what, if, if there's a way to take yourself out of the picture – because that, that that gives you some more freedom instead of building something that's deeply personal only. Right. Um, that that helps with the uncertainty a bit. So if I decide, you know, I've, it's been eight years, I've been traveling so far, and if I wanted to stay still, I think there's no shame in doing so at this point. No. Um, it's been forever. You know, at the moment, it's not my plan. I just, I rent places, and if I'm not there, I sublet them or, you know, I haven't just built a base in a tremendous way. But if I did, then I decided, you know, I don't want to blog on Legal Nomads anymore. I would have these additional projects that could stand alone. So I think that's probably the most important thing to think about. Like, what can I do, whatever I'm building, that could stand alone, even if I needed to write myself out of the picture? Um, And serial entrepreneurs are really good at that, but I think they do it to an extreme too much. Like, not all of us can just iterate and build startups and then flip them or sell them or, you know, there's... Right. To me, that, to me, that's too impersonal just because I, I might, I think the most important thing in life is that's, you know, connecting to other humans and doing so in a way that's deeply personal. Yeah. Um, so building a business around what I've done, but also trying to mitigate the, the personal side of it with something that's a little more objectively, you know, standalone has been really helpful in dealing with that uncertainty. Mm. I like that. Kate Northrup speaks a lot about that, about having, and she speaks about money in a very spiritual way, which is why I connect with her as Mm -hmm. an author and a coach. But she talks about, you know, because 
that's life, right? You know, certain things will fall out and they'll ebb and flow. And so if you have this product and that product and you're writing, um, you know, you're always going to have kind of a baseline that will keep you, keep you above water, I guess I would say. Yeah. And the skills are the skills, right? Yeah. You can't take, no no one should be able to take that from you. If you've built up a Mm, skill set, even if it isn't what you want to do, you know, that's, that's still valuable. That's still something that can be flipped into something else. Like people feel so deeply disappointed in themselves when they change perspective and failure is something, you know, you said briefly about American society, you know, in Asia, losing face is a, a really deep part of culture there. And a lot of uh, problems arise from it, similar to our perspectives on failure. I think, you know, to be able to try and have some compassion for ourselves is really important and something we don't really get taught about no, as we we're don't. growing up. Yeah, yeah, that is a really important point. I really like that. So if our listeners want to connect with you, the blog is Legal Nomads. Are you That's av- correct. available on social media as well? Yep, I am on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, also all under Legal Nomads as the. Yeah, and I uh, use Twitter. Twitter's not really my travels. I I share um, mostly curated long form writing. I used to work with Long Reads as a contributing editor, and I I've always used Twitter as a way to share interesting articles. But Instagram is like photos from my travels, and usually with really long captions about you know where I am and what I'm what 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 the experience is if you put yourself in that place. So I've loved building an Instagram following um, and people are super interactive on that medium. It's really fun. I need to get on that medium. All right. (laughs) With that and all of this listeners is going to be on our website as well. And the book is the food travelers handbook. Jody, thank you so much for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure myself. Thank you so much. Thank you. And listeners, thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Jody or any of our guests, please go to bemovingforward.com. That's bemovingforward.com. I'm Kristen Epper. Have a great week and Satnam. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and bemovingforward.com. All rights reserved.